0: A 24-year-old woman lies in bed in the recovery area after her surgery. She just had her infected appendix removed in surgery under general anesthesia. She felt okay in the few minutes after surgery, but now that she's in the recovery area, she feels waves of nausea. The anti-nausea medication she received a few minutes ago hasn't kicked in yet, and she feels miserable. How long is this supposed to last? Why does she have so much nausea after surgery? when her 50-year-old male colleague, who had the same surgery a few months ago, had no issues. Did something go wrong?
1: Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira akir and Dr. Alobi Patel. We are the Female Pain Docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle
0: modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary.
1: Welcome back to another episode of The Hurt Podcast, Season 3. So in this episode, If you haven't already guessed, we're going to talk about the side effects of anesthesia. Now, this is a pretty big topic with a lot of nuances depending on the medical history of the patient as well as the type of anesthesia, but we're going to try to simplify it down to the most common side effects, how they come to be, and whether you may be at risk. Now, later in this episode, we'll touch on less common and more serious side effects as well. So let's start with one very common side effect, which honestly probably deserves an episode all in its own, just because of how much and how involved it is,
0: but we're going to boil it down for you. Post-surgery, nausea and vomiting. You are so right about that. There is just so much on this one side effect because it's so common. And in fact, it's about 30% of individuals after anesthesia, but it could be up to 80% risk in some patients, which we'll get into in a second. But first, post-operative nausea vomiting is nausea and vomiting that occurs sometime in the first 24 hours after surgery, and can happen for many different reasons, from the surgery itself to the effect of the anesthesia. So who is at risk for developing nausea and vomiting after surgery? So like we described in
1: our scenario, one of the risk factors is the female gender. So a meta-analysis of over 95,000 adults found that the strongest overall predictor for nausea after surgery was the female gender. So when they looked at children prior to puberty, there was no increased risk. So our hormones probably have something
0: to do with an increased risk for nausea. Another big risk factor is age. So after puberty, the younger you are, the higher the risk of nausea. This is important to note because oftentimes we'll have patients who are older tell us that, let's say 20 years ago, they had a lot of nausea after surgery. So that doesn't mean that you will this time. And as we said, age makes a difference. So the older you get, the lower your risk of nausea. And also, non-smokers also have a higher risk for post-op nausea, as do patients with a history of motion sickness. So that covers patient risk factors. Then there
1: are anesthetic risk factors and surgical risk factors. So anesthetic risk factors include the type of anesthetics used during surgery. So for example... There are certain anesthetic medications that increase your risk for nausea, while others decrease your risk for nausea. So a longer duration of time under anesthesia also increases your risk for nausea. So a longer surgery will put you at higher risk for nausea post-op than a shorter one. So if you've experienced post-op nausea vomiting before, you definitely should mention this to your anesthesiologist so we can try to minimize this. And you should also mention what type of surgery it was when you experienced the side effect. So that brings me to surgical risk factors. So like I said, a longer surgery, AKA a longer time under anesthesia, increases your risk, as does abdominal surgeries. So surgeries like appendectomies where your appendix is removed, cholecystectomies where your gallbladder is removed, bowel surgeries, gynecologic surgeries, and more. And lastly, opioids also increase your risk for nausea. So being given opioids for pain, either during or after surgery, can certainly cause more nausea. But on the flip side, excessive pain can also worsen nausea. So a balance is really
0: needed to best minimize risk. So what will we as anesthesiologists do to minimize your risk for nausea? So for one, if there are no contraindications, we can change what anesthetic medications we use for you to be able to maximize the non-nausea inducing anesthetic agents. So we can also give you different kinds of anti-nausea medications as well. Before we wake you up, studies have actually shown that combining two or more antiemetics, or basically those anti-nausea medications is more effective than any single agent. And we can try to control your pain using as much non-opioid therapy as possible. So for example, using non-opioid pain medications, making sure you're well hydrated and sometimes even performing nerve blocks before waking you up after surgery. So we have many different ways to try to control nausea in the post-op period.
1: You know, but if you've had a previous bad experience with nausea, make sure to tell your next anesthesiologist about it so we can do our best to prevent it from happening again. So now let's move on to another possible side effect, a sore throat. Now, this can happen either due to a breathing device that's placed or just simple dehydration causing dryness in your mouth and throat. But let's touch upon a breathing device as that's usually the reason in most post-op sore throat cases. So general anesthesia involves a breathing device that is placed either along the back of your throat or through your vocal cords in order to control your breathing. Now, this is required for many different kinds of surgery in order to keep you safe. But unfortunately, sometimes that breathing device can irritate the tissue in your throat and cause inflammation manifesting in a sore throat. Now, if this has happened to you before, mention it to your anesthesiologist because there are a few different ways we can try to combat it. Dr. P, want
0: to get into them? Absolutely. So, for one, if possible, we can use a slightly smaller breathing tube the next time so there's less chance to irritate that tissue. We can also deposit some numbing medication in the back of the throat when we place that tube so that the back of your throat feels much less painful. And lastly, in the recovery area, we can give you some strong numbing lozenges to soothe your throat. All in all, the sore throat really shouldn't last for more than a few hours or at most a few days after surgery. So now let's move to another side effect, shivering. Dr. K, do you want to take that one? Yes. So we normally shiver when we're cold, right? So now
1: in post-anesthesia patients, shivering happens with hypothermia. So that's when your body temperature drops below 36 degrees Celsius. But weirdly enough, it can also happen with normothermia, where your body temperature is completely normal. So that's between 36 and 38 degrees Celsius. Now the normothermia reaction isn't really understood, but hypothermia can happen in the OR because anesthetic medications cause vasodilation. So in other words, the blood goes to your extremities causing a drop in your core body temperature. So while you won't shiver while you're unconscious under anesthesia, you may shiver when you're awake in the recovery area. And it's important to get the shivering under control. Excessive shivering can increase how quickly oxygen is consumed, which leads to lower oxygen levels in the blood. And then this, in turn, can also cause lactic acidosis, which is basically buildup of lactic acid in your bloodstream. Now, what does that do? Well, it can cause weakness, nausea, and muscle aches. So the first course of action we take is preventative. We use warming devices on you while you're actually in the operating room to get your body temperature back up, and we even use them in the recovery area. And we can also sometimes use warm IV fluids intraoperatively. And lastly, we may use IV medication to stop shivering in the recovery
0: area. That's a great summary. So remember with all of the the side effects we're mentioning, it's not always so simple, and there are many nuances to this. But what we're really hoping for is that you get a basic idea so you can provide your anesthesiologist with pertinent information as needed, and also so you understand for yourself what may actually be happening in your body. So next, let's discuss muscle aches. So this can be another common side effect of anesthesia, and usually has to do with one culprit, succinylcholine. Succinylcholine is a type of muscle relaxant that is used to cause temporary paralysis. Now, this isn't a medication we use in every single patient, but in certain situations, we do use it to be able to place a breathing tube. You're, of course, already asleep before we give you this medication but one of the side effects is that it causes all of your muscles to twitch for a few seconds. That temporary twitching can manifest as aches and pains when you wake up, which can sometimes last for a few
1: days. Now, it's important to note that muscle aches or nerve pain after surgery can also be due to lying in one position or an OR table for a long time. You don't feel the stiffness or possibly even pinching of a nerve during the surgery because you're asleep, but you may develop pain afterwards. And if this happens, you should definitely let your OR team know so they can try to find you a solution and, you know, generally keep an eye on it to make sure everything improves. So in the event that you already have pain before you come in for surgery, like, you know, a lot of our chronic pain patients, let's say your back or your neck feels the best in a particular position because other positions cause pain to get worse. You should let us know that when we see you in the holding area so that once you're in the OR, we can try our best to get you in the most comfortable position possible using blankets and pillows and you know maybe foam,
0: for example, before you go off to sleep. Exactly. And we want to try to get you through surgery in the safest and most comfortable way possible. So letting us know what your concerns are ahead of the time helps a lot. Next, let's talk about urinary retention. So in other words, why you may have trouble peeing after surgery. So after surgery, you may have trouble urinating, but also may have trouble recognizing that you have to go to the bathroom in the first place. So in literature, the side effect is cited as happening anywhere between 5 to 70% of the time, which is obviously a huge range, but regardless, it's not an uncommon side effect. So why does this happen, Dr. K? Okay. So the urinary system, well, it's
1: pretty complicated and it has several signaling pathways that control the bladder. Now, general anesthesia can suppress those signaling pathways at both the central nervous system, so that's basically your brain, your brain that tells you that you need to go to the bathroom, as well as your peripheral nervous system, which is the actual contraction of the bladder, known as the detrusor muscle. So medications you receive in the OR, like opioids, for example, they can interfere with your ability to urinate. Another cause is surgical pain pain activates your sympathetic nervous system, basically your fight or flight response, which leads to relaxation of that muscle of the bladder, causing your bladder to keep filling but not actually empty. So those reasons are the main components of why you may have trouble urinating after surgery. But we have to keep in mind other complications like destruction of the pelvic anatomy with certain pelvic surgeries
0: as well, but you know those are a little bit less likely as causes. So who is at risk? So for one, men are at double risk of developing urinary retention compared to women. And age is another factor. So the rates go up 2.4 times in patients over the age of 50. And some other comorbidities associated with post-operative urinary retention are renal failure, diabetes, untreated BPH, or benign prosthetic hypertrophy, or basically a condition of the prostate, as well as psychiatric illnesses such as depression. In terms of surgical risk factors, patients undergoing knee, hip, or colon surgeries are at greatest risk, as well as patients who have surgery with an operative time of more than two hours. One study looking at joint patients found that the risk of urinary retention increased by 25% for every 15 minutes spent in the operating room after those first two hours. And another risk is getting a lot of IV fluids during surgery when there isn't a Foley or a bladder catheter in place. So basically, here the bladder stretches without that urine being released, causing that post-operative urinary retention. So what can we do to prevent that post-operative urinary retention?
1: Well, let's go back to what you just mentioned about IV fluids. So this is exactly why Foley catheters are placed during longer surgeries, So that one, we can prevent post-op urinary retention so that the bladder doesn't have a chance to stretch. And two, we can also keep track of how well you're hydrated. So we can make sure that the reason that you're not urinating afterwards isn't because you're dehydrated. We also get you moving as quickly as possible post-surgery. So one study showed that early ambulation, in other words, getting out of bed and walking around, can decrease rates of post-op urinary retention from 52% to 19%. And we can also try to use less opioids and more narcotic sparing techniques like non-opioid medications and possibly even nerve blocks. Like we mentioned earlier in this episode, this will also help prevent post-op nausea and vomiting. So either way, we do utilize techniques to prevent post-op urinary retention. And if you're not peeing after surgery, your surgical team will keep an eye on it before you're discharged. You know, and this is why you're often asked to go to the bathroom during outpatient surgeries, just to make sure that there are no issues before you go home.
0: Now that we've covered quite a bit, let's get into the last side effect that we're discussing in this episode, post-operative cognitive dysfunction. In other words, confusion, delirium, and memory loss after surgery. This is a side effect that we know many patients are scared of happening, so we want to get into some of the myths as well as the facts of this known complication that has been studied since 1995. So let's get into who is at risk. Dr. K, do you want to give us some statistics? Sure. So let's start with surgeries. So
1: overall, up to 30% of surgeries are done on the elderly population, so that's those over 65, which translates to approximately 12.5 million individuals. And it's estimated that of those patients, 20% develop post-op delirium, which increases the cost of hospitalization by about $2,500 per patient with the development of this complication. So, you know, in addition to the patient suffering, the overall economic burden is also really high. So what is post-op delirium? So post-op delirium has a variety of characteristics. So it's everything from being hyperactive post-surgery so irritability, restlessness, rapid speech, and just you know, overall being very disruptive without really understanding where they are or why they're there. But it can also present with hypoactive symptoms. So really calm but inattentive, more difficulty in moving around, and trouble answering even simple questions. So why does this
0: happen? Let's discuss some of the risk factors. The biggest risk factor we typically see in our postoperative patients is advanced age, so the elderly population. Other risk factors include sensory deprivation, so patients who are visually or hearing impaired, as well as sleep deprivation. So this doesn't just mean one night of sleep deprivation necessarily, but chronic sleep deprivation or disrupted sleep, as well as social isolation, so patients who don't have a support system. Uh, use of a bladder catheter, so patients who have those bladder or Foley catheters, as well as polypharmacy, or use of psychoactive medications, and basically patients who are on or have been receiving many different medications that have an effect on mental on the mental state. So many different risk factors, essentially. Severe illness can also play a part. So patients who currently have an infection or a fracture or a stroke uh, some of these patients may also have abnormalities like a fever, dehydration, or malnutrition that can contribute to the delirium. And of course, patients who already have a history of cognitive impairment to begin with, such as dementia. And all of this makes sense. When we look at ICU patients, delirium occurs in up to 80% of sedated ICU patients. And ICU patients usually fall into many of those risk factors that we just mentioned. Right. Right.
1: Now, post-op delirium is a very temporary state in the immediate post-surgery period. So it could be lasting anywhere between a few hours and then just resolving on its own. But we do take care to prevent these symptoms from, from occurring and treat them if they do. So things like scheduling the surgery early in the day, as these issues are more likely to occur later in the evening. We also employ effective pain management by using nerve blocks and avoiding kind of using too many medications, too many anesthetic medications that may contribute to delirium. Studies have also shown that using these techniques reduce the rate of post-op delirium by 35%. And we also try to maintain homeostasis, basically keeping your body mechanics as stable as possible by making sure that you're well hydrated, your blood counts are stable, you're well oxygenated, and your temperature is normal. But what if you develop post-op cognitive issues anyway and it lasts longer than a few hours? So this is where we note the term post-op cognitive dysfunction, which is when there's new onset cognitive dysfunction lasting at least two weeks post-surgery. The symptoms can vary from anything from mild memory loss to a lack of ability to concentrate or process information. And some studies have shown that post-op cognitive dysfunction lasting for more than three months after non-cardiac surgery have been associated with increased mortality risk for up to eight years after surgery, and an increased risk of death in the first year after surgery. So these statistics regarding post-op cognitive dysfunction are variable, but some have shown this occurring for up to 13% of elderly
0: patients post-surgery. So like we mentioned, there have been many different studies that have looked at post-op cognitive dysfunction, but one interesting question is whether general anesthesia is the cause of post-op cognitive delirium or dysfunction. While there have been many conflicting studies, the most recent one suggests that post-op cognitive dysfunction is actually independent of the type of surgery and the type of anesthesia. So what are the risk factors for developing post-op cognitive dysfunction? Well, similar to delirium, the biggest one is advanced age, and other risk factors include a previous history of stroke and a lower educational level. Studies are, of course, ongoing, and we will do our best to prevent this negative outcome by employing the same strategies as we do to prevent post-op delirium. Okay, so we've covered quite a bit in this episode in terms of common anesthesia side
1: effects. And now if there's a topic related to this we haven't yet covered, please reach out to us. We can make sure to include it next time. And thank you for listening to season three of the H.E.R.D. podcast.
0: We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at the female pain docs at Gmail. If you have any topics in particular, you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our
1: website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.